So it's been a great journey, hasn't it? Um, if, you don't, if you haven't been with us over these past weeks, you probably know a lot of the story of Exodus anyway. You've got this inc- these incredible events. Moses, who looks as if he's going to be as a baby, losing his life, who ends up being incredibly saved, growing up in Pharaoh's house. He, Egypt, the plagues, the crossing the Red Sea, all of the dramatic events, the mountain and the clouds and the lightning and the Moses coming down with a shining face and uh, commandments carved into stone, all of that kind of stuff. And you think to yourself, don't you? I think there's a possibility that we think to ourselves, what is this story all about? What is, where's it taking us? Is this just a, an interesting history lesson of what happened to God's people. Well, I hope it hasn't been that. I hope we've been able to say how, see how these events impact on us today, but I think there's a real danger that we get through this storyline and we see the, the kind of the last chapter particularly, or the last few chapters kind of just taking us gently down to land as this, this, is, this is kind of the closing point and it's got a little bit of a, a bit of a quiet ending and nothing dramatic. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further tr- from the truth. This final chapter, in fact, the last four verses of this chapter are the most important verses, I would say, in the whole of the chapter. They make sense of everything that's gone before. They make it worthwhile. And I I want to say straight off as we open up that what we're dealing about with is something so incredibly important that we could spend the whole of our walk as a believer thinking, considering, and understanding how this issue can shape us. And it's quite simply this. It is the glory of God. You say it like that, that does not sound exciting, does it? It's just something that kind of trips off our tongue. But we need to get a grip and understand and come to terms with the glory of God because the ending few verses, as we're going to see over these next few minutes, really, if they are not there, then everything that's gone before is meaningless. It's that serious. Really, you think... What there's been incredible things, there's been dramatic things. Surely they stand on their own. Well, no. That actually, I don't believe they do stand on their own. They are meaningless without these last four verses. So let's have a dig into it and let's understand where are we headed. Well, the first thing, let's remind ourselves, what is the purpose of Egypt and leaving Egypt? Back in Exodus chapter 7, Verse 16, God says to Moses, you go and you tell Pharaoh this, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. That's what God said to Moses. That's what this is all about. It's about getting God's people out of Egypt not so that they're rescued. You know, if, if it's all about only us being rescued, it becomes incredibly self-centered. That's not what it's about. 
the rescue has a purpose. The rescue has a reason. And the reason for the rescue is so that they would worship God. That's why, they, that's why they're taken out of Egypt. So that they would see and understand the God who has saved them and they would be in awe and they would worship. That's what it's all about. Worship is so incredibly important, so central, that God desires the worship of His people. And in fact, when we truly understand the glory of God, we can't do anything but worship. It's not like God says, I'm going to take you out of it and you better worship me. It's like, you better worship me, otherwise I'm going to beat you up. It's not like that. It's when we truly understand God, we are filled with worship. We can't do anything but worship God. I don't know whether you've ever had one of those experiences in life. Something which is breathtaking. Something which is awe-inspiring. Something which is majestic. Sometimes artwork does that for you, doesn't it? Sometimes uh, breathtaking scenery does that for you. All sorts of different things in this created world can take our breath away. Some of it is the creation of God. Some of it as us creators in the reflection of God can take our breath away as well. If you take the most breathtaking experience that you have ever had, and you focus on that breathtaking experience, and you imagine and you remember your emotions and your feelings during that moment in time, and if you multiply it by a million times, you will not even get close to comprehending the glory of God. Not even close. That is how breathtaking, that how majestic, how sp splendid God is. And He says to you, as He said to these people, I invite you to come out of Egypt to see me and to worship me. That's the invitation. What we've seen is on this journey, God's people have spent whole periods of time with far more interest in digging around in the sand of the desert than in seeing God. They've disappeared off down kind of bypath pathways. They've strayed. They've rejected. They've taken the valuable treasures of Egypt that were given them eventually to furnish the, the tabernacle, and they build a golden calf to worship a, a, a lump of metal. And yet this moment, these concluding verses, they see something, and they are blown away. Let's see how it unfolds. First thing I want to say is that we see that they are preparing for God's glory. Verse 40 and verse 1 and 2 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the month. 
set it up. Get it ready. There isn't any clear indication of how long it took them to build this. But if, as we went through over these past few weeks, looking at the, the whole process of building this tabernacle, it was an incredible construction. There were people re- who were remarkably gifted, who are identified by God and said, I have given them these skills, and they're now going to use these skills to glorify me by building this tabernacle. And the detail in which the tabernacle is constructed is, is down to the most incredible detail. The way in which it's unfolding, God says right now, at the moment it seems as though all of the tabernacle is effectively, I'll say a pile of bits, I would say a a neat pile of bits, a well-ordered set of components. That's what it's like. It's folded material. It's huge stacks of poles lying on the floor. Rope, tables covered in gold. The incredible ark that we saw last week is sat there. What's it all going to do? And God says, right, now's the time. It's now time to build. I wonder what the anticipation would have been for those people as they were putting together this tabernacle Did they have any idea of what was going to happen when they'd completed the construction? But that's what they do. Place the poles in the ground, lift up the curtains, stretch the ropes, pull it tight. And there's a whole set of detail. Then right, and then Moses said, right now take the ark, place it at the center, and then hide it with this curtain that I've specifically identified that you were to build. That thing that, you, that you've constructed is now hidden. It's, it, it's separated. You can't, remember we saw last week, you can't get to that promise without getting through the altar and the sacrifice. This construction was made in such a way that I would imagine that as it was being built, it all started to make sense the way it was constructed, the messages that it communicated, the people suddenly realized, we can't get to that ark. It's hidden from us. There's an altar in the way. There's a a huge kind of outer courtyard that's been constructed. This is, and it is beautiful. So this symbolic place of God's dwelling is now constructed. It's sitting there and waiting. Waiting for what? It's not good enough just to have the building. Verse 9 says, take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it, consecrate it, and all its furnishings, and it will be holy. It's going to be set aside for the purpose. But then in verse 12 and 13, there's something else that's needed. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting. Wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him, and consecrate him so that he may serve me as a priest. 
So what we've got is during the construction of the tabernacle, there's been various things that have been anointed with, with oil so that they are marked now as holy. They have a purpose. They're a set-aside thing. So you don't use this table when you take down the tabernacle. You don't use it to cut the wood <laughs> for the fire, for the camp. It's set aside, it's holy, it's got a purpose. But the things aren't good enough. I want you to imagine for a minute that we, we'll put on our Hebrew sandals and we're not anybody important. We're just ordinary people. Ordinary people who've left Egypt, who've been amazed at some of the things that God has done. And we've been shocked at some of the things that we've done. And then we find ourselves in this place where God has told Moses to now construct this tabernacle. And our ordinary people can't get to it. But it's okay. It's okay because God has said, the way that you get to it is through the priest. You need a priest. If we were back at that point in history, we needed Aaron and his sons. We needed the priestly line to do the things so that us who are rebels against this God could be accepted by this God. How did, what did that look like? It looked like you and me coming to the tabernacle and bringing a sacrifice and the priest at the gate, at the door of the tabernacle taking that sacrifice and sacrificing it on the altar and blood was shed so that we could then figuratively, symbolically be accepted by that sacrifice. And what happened in the tabernacle continued and happened in the temple. So there's this picture that is now emerging that the promise of God which is in the center is the precious, holy, separated thing, space. We can't get to that. It is way too holy to get to, but the sacrifice makes it possible that we can claim it as ours. And we can say, that promise is for me. See, the holy presence of God always needs an intermediary. God's too holy. That's, that's what this tabernacle is saying. I am too holy for you, but it's okay because I'll make it possible through the priest. If we understand anything of the message of the Bible, that is what makes sense of Jesus. God is way too holy for us, but it's okay because there's a priest. That intermediary that we needed in the wilderness, we still need, but it's not a priest who still walks around now. It's one priest, Jesus, who has entered into that holy place in the way that these priests would go into the holy place and stands as our priest before God. That's 
That's the message. That's what the tabernacle says. It says, I'm holy, you're not, but it's okay. There is a way to be right with God. What way was to be right with God? The only way to be right with God was by being obedient to God. I don't know whether you noticed in verses 1 to 16 of our reading, God gives the instructions of what they're to do. Verse 17 to 33, it's about the obedience of them doing what God said that they're to do. So, God said, right, this is how the tabernacle is to be constructed. It's going to be shaped like this. So, that's how they did it. Because if the Ark of the Covenant was outside and the altar was in the holy place, then if it was in the wrong order, then they couldn't sacrifice. They couldn't get to the place of sacrifice. So, God says, it's got to be in this order. The second 17 to 33 is them doing it. Do you see it was almost, it happens again and again. Verse, uh, verse 23, verse 26, verse 27, verse mm, 29, verse 32. What does it say again and again and again? As the Lord commanded him. He did it as the Lord commanded him. So, God says, right, Moses, do this, and then we can, you can, we can have a relationship. If you do it my way. So, that's, that's interesting. That message, that idea, that concept is absolutely critical for our generation. We live in a world now where it is perfectly acceptable in our imagination and in our minds to construct God in just the way we want God to be constructed. To construct salvation in just the way we want it to be constructed. To construct the way we ought to be in just the way we want it to be constructed. We create the God that we want... And in creating the God that we want, we never have the God that we actually need. There's our problem. We can, we can construct a God that might make us feel good, but it's a God that can never bring us salvation. The God that we want, the God that we shape, shaped God that we want it to be, is not the God that we need. The God that we need is the God who shapes Himself as He reveals Himself to us. See the difference? How, what's God like? Is it the God that we construct or is it the God who constructs Himself as He describes Himself to us? How does God describe Himself to us? Well, they did it as the Lord commanded Him. The way that God constructs Himself is through exactly the same words now. The words that follow through, right the way through the message of the Bible. I know and I understand and I accept completely that we can have differing views on certain parts of the Bible. We can have different ideas of importance of one thing or another. That, that is not the issue. The issue is this. Was the t tabernacle and the temple 
and the construction of the temple all pointing us to a sacrifice system which was absolutely necessary and finds its ultimate satisfaction in Jesus, who is our sacrifice. Was that Jesus no less than God present with us? Was that Jesus who was present with us, died on a cross, raised again, returned to heaven to return back to us so that our responsibility as the people had to construct the tabernacle according to God's way, we now have to construct our lives, our ways, our understanding in the way that God commands us. So we live under the law of Jesus. That structure, that idea is a God-constructed perspective of Himself. It's how He describes Himself. I really want to encourage you, if that idea is a real challenge to you, I understand why it might be. And, and I want to encourage you, please grab a hold of me at the end of this evening. If the idea that that we don't have license to construct just the God that we want is, is a problem. I, I do understand that that's tough. I, and I've, I've enjoyed so many conversations with people over the years where we've started to dig into that. But it's really important that we understand that the salvation that we need is the salvation that God describes, not the salvation that we describe. So they prepare themselves. Leaving Egypt, all the dramatic events, imagine, imagine excitement, excitement on a graph. All the previous stuff, it's up here, isn't it? Some of the stuff that's going on. And then we get to the, these last four verses. I want you to understand that the excitement level on the graph goes off the scale in these last four verses. Look at what it says. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Sorry, the tabernacle. That happens later. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they could set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. That is like, wow! God has made Himself present with us. You'll come and worship me in the wilderness. What does it mean to worship God in the wilderness? Some kind of mantra to an unseen God, an unknown God, or a God who says, I am now with you. Let's go on a journey of the past. We stood around the bottom of the mountain, and we saw the clouds, and we saw the thunder, and we saw the awesome sight, but we didn't get close. The God who was present in the mountaintop experience of Moses becomes the God who is present in the tabernacle where the people are right alongside it. See the difference? They couldn't set foot on the mountain. Why? 
because they didn't have the law at that point. They didn't know what was appropriate to come close to God. Now they know what's appropriate to come close to God, and they've got God present with them. God's incredible, glorious presence. From the mountaintop, God dwells with the people. That is the culminating drama, the pinnacle of the whole of the book. Will God save Moses? Will God bring Moses back? Will God release His people? Will God save them at the Red Sea? Will God give them the law? Will God move them through the wilderness? Will God accept them when they've rebelled? All of that is really interesting stuff. And then God says, finally, with this huge heavenly stamp, He says, yes, I will. And I'll show that I will because I'll make myself present with them. Boom. Incredible. A glorious presence. There's something else, isn't there? There's glorious guidance. God's present and God's a guide. God's present in the tabernacle when He stays in the tabernacle. When it's time to move, He's present with them again. The cloud of front and the fire. God is visibly present for every people group that these people come into contact with. They see the distinction of this people as they arrive with the, this nomadic group of people, there is the dramatic presence of God evident. God isn't a hidden idea in a solid gold statue. God isn't a huge temple in Egypt, but silent. God for the Hebrew people, is a living, present God. Incredible. And they become witnesses to that God with everybody that they engage with. You say, well, that's just fantastic. God made Himself present with His people. I want to tie two verses together and conclude this whole series by understanding that the present glorious God for the Hebrew people is the present glorious God for you and me. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians, chapter, 20, chapter 6 and verse 16, it says this. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? kind of what I've just been saying. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. You get that? We are the temple of the living God. This glorious God who descended onto a fabric structure and later onto a stone construction, this glorious God, this majestic, glorious God 
dwells now where? We're the temple. We are the temple of God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where's that from? Exodus chapter 37. Isn't that breathtaking? Paul says, do you understand what this tabernacle, what this temple was all about? It was all so temporary. Because my real purpose was not to dwell momentarily in a cloud. My real purpose was to dwell in you. In you. What did it look like when it started? Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. That's, that's Pentecost. That's God saying, do you understand what change is taking place? I used to dwell in the temple. I used to dwell in the tabernacle. Do you know what? That's way too far away for my people. I'm going to dwell in you. The glorious God is going to dwell in you. That changes everything. What's your greatest fear? What's the thing which knocks you sideways? What's the thing that worries you more than anything else? The glory of God dwells within you. That is bigger than anything. Anything. There is nothing greater than the glory of God. Understanding, seeing, grabbing hold of that and realizing that, that just trumps anything. I am safe when that's the situation. When God is dwelling in me, there is nothing that can knock me out. Why is that? Because ultimately, temple language ends up in eternity. If you read Revelation, and you see the, descri the description of this, this new Jerusalem that is coming down and descending. What All of the language is about the temple. And God says, then I will dwell with my people. I will walk with them. See, that's the language that he says. I will live with them, I will walk among them, and I will be their God. Exodus is a temporary pointing towards the reversal of the problem of Genesis where we no longer walk with God. And eternity is the, finally the place where we walk with God again. And in the meantime, there is nothing more breathtaking than the glory of God. Nothing that can keep us safe. Nothing bigger. Nothing more secure. 
Nothing more important. Nothing can stand against that. And he will dwell within you.